You have drunk my medicine. She flutters strangely about the room, answering me all the very things Ouch! It was poison and you drank it to save my life. Tea, dear tea, Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that hunts down your favorite pop culture from the 80s and 90s, wherever it may be lurking, lures it out of hiding by promising it candy, and straps it down to a gurney for dissection, oftentimes killing it in the process. (laughs) I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to be discovered wearing drag in Drew Barrymore's closet. I'm Seth, the host most likely to be going to the spaceship to the moon with Drew Barrymore in tow. (laughs) And I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to eat your Reese's Pieces. She's doing it. (laughs) She's doing it right now. Previously on the When We Were Young podcast, we have discussed evil shape-shifting aliens, evil chest-bursting aliens, evil super-gross buggy aliens, <laughs> evil wacky babbling aliens, evil city-destroying aliens, evil aliens you can only see through magic sunglasses, evil aliens who may or may not be out there, nice aliens who do cosplay as your dead dad, and Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> but do you recall the most famous alien of all? <laughs> E.T. the extraterrestrial <laughs> had a very shiny finger. <laughs> perfect. That scanned perfectly. Yeah. Once again, we just hit the song parodies right on the nose. Yes, in this episode, we are finally getting around to E.T., the alien whose very name is just another way to say alien. We talk about childhood in the 80s all the time on this podcast, and there are not many films that both capture what a suburban childhood was like in the 80s and are also such a big part of so many 80s childhoods. E.T. was the biggest hit of the 80s, and the runner-up was not even close. If you saw one single movie in the 80s, chances are it was E.T. You're saying that it was the biggest box office of the 80s? Mm-hmm. Wow, of the whole decade? Of the whole decade. Wow. Like, by far. Do you know what was the runner-up? Return of the Jedi. Oh, wow. Wow. It beat it that much? Like, almost 100 million, I think. Wow. Which was a lot. I mean, still is a lot, but yeah. it was even more back then. So yeah, E.T. was a monster. He's an alien, Chris. Oh, man. I'm going to have to change <laughs> all my notes. <laughs> the alien community rejects that terminology. So what is it like coming back to such a monumental movie as adults? Will we be over the moon for this film or merely silhouetted against it? <laughs> Let's find out. Jumping back in the DeLorean a Saturday morning Cause we both be cynical and radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Here we think it'll suddenly suck Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a person or will it be fun? Decades later will it still hold up? And this is when we Regular listeners to this podcast probably already know that Becky, Seth, and I all met at film school at USC, where Becky and I took a class on Mr. Steven Spielberg. I did not take that class. I just showed up. (laughs) That's why I remember you being there, because you always came with me. Okay, I took a class on Steven Spielberg. What's the word? Becky audited? I audited. Yeah. Uh, Unofficially. Yeah, you unofficially audited. That's called crashing. (laughs) 
So yes, I officially was enrolled in a Steven Spielberg class where we watched one or more of his movies every week in class, covered almost his entire filmography, wrote papers about Spielberg, took tests about Spielberg, had Spielberg come and visit us at the end of the semester. The moral of the story is go to film school. (laughs) It is better than real school. Yeah, it is. So this episode, more than any other episode of the podcast, feels like going back to film school for me and feels like crashing film school for Becky. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel nothing, as usual. So I was able to use my old books from the Spielberg class to prepare for this podcast. Very little of what I read about him, if anything, was like actually news to me, but it was fun, you know, going back to it. Stories about Steven Spielberg are legendary. Even if you don't know much about filmmaking, you might have heard the stories behind the scenes of Jaws and how the mechanical shark didn't work and forced Spielberg to be more creative in how he filmed it. You may have gone to Universal Studios, which is basically Steven Spielberg Studios. (laughs) Spielberg land. Yeah, I'd rather go there. The post ride is wild. (laughs) There's a whole land of Spielberg's hats. You just try on different hats. The terminal's kind of (laughs) boring. It's just waiting to go into the park. Spielberg has made so many popular and influential and beloved movies that it's hard to single out any as the definitive Spielberg movie, but there's definitely a case to be made that E.T. is his filmmaking boiled down to its most elemental form. It's probably the first Spielberg movie a lot of people see. It's one of the top film scores people could hum back to you. Some of the quotes are the most recognizable quotes from movies of all time. Even if you haven't seen E.T., you probably know images from this movie, like the logo that Steven Spielberg himself used for Amblin Entertainment. And, like I said, this movie made a ridiculous amount of money and became the biggest hit of all time at the time. A title it held for 11 years until Steven Spielberg was unseated by... Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Jurassic Park? (laughs) Yep. So this movie conjures up a lot of stuff from childhood. Riding bikes, playing with toys, phoning home. (laughs) Being stalked by Peter Coyote. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I don't know how they do things down in Louisiana. That's pretty much it. That's the long and short of it. But for my opening question, I'm going to go with my favorite, which is eating candy. (laughs) (laughs) And just ask you guys, what was your favorite candy when you were young? And do you still eat that candy now? Anything chocolate, pretty much. My mom would buy me like a candy bar a day. And that's why I spent four summers in fat camp (laughs) and still have a weight problem. Yeah, I ate candy all the time. I think that my favorite was either Reese's peanut butter cups or Snickers. That was what I gravitated toward the most. Good Um, choices. Yeah, Yeah. I would say no, I don't eat them at all. I still eat chocolate less regularly, but I get the good stuff. I get the imported stuff. I go to World Market. Like the king-size Snickers? No, I get like the stuff made from actually... uh, I I get the the snobby stuff. Mm -hmm. I get the snobby stuff that's like $9 a candy bar, and it's great. And then I remember it had been years since I ate anything like Hershey's or Mars. And it was Halloween and I worked in an office and they just had those like little mini bars. And I was like, sure, I'll have some. And I thought it tasted gross. (laughs) Like I was like, Hershey's is disgusting. (laughs) But I think that's from years of just having a, a more gourmet palate. Yeah, I don't crave it anymore. Maybe a Reese's peanut butter cup is probably the only thing I might indulge now that my daughter goes trick-or-treating and I might steal one of those. But I don't really crave it anymore. So no. 
It's not snobby at all. And you use the word the real shit. And that is literally, <laughs> quite literally true. To the point now where if you check a lot of the packaging of like Hershey's or Reese's especially, you'll see like quote unquote chocolate flavored mm. because technically they don't actually contain enough real chocolate to legally qualify as chocolate bars. What is it then? Like sugar. it's sugar, palm oil, corn syrup, it's garbage. It's literal mm. garbage. And in part, a lot of those like really mainstream candy bars have been reformulated to be even cheaper to manufacture. But also it's like, you're not lying. Like when you say you buy like the real shit, you know, even just getting like the dark chocolate peanut butter cups at Trader Joe's, that's more mm-hmm. real actual chocolate than anything the Reese's Corporation puts out at all. I thought your answer is Becky were fantastic <laughs> as far as the candy you liked as a kid. I loved Snickers. I loved Twix. I loved Reese's. I loved anything chocolate flavored. I also really loved like Starburst and Skittles. Just truly nothing but pure uncut reformulated sugar and and food dye. Just put it in front of my face and I would have wolfed it down. I very much try not to eat those anymore. I mean, I still emotionally eat, but I intentionally try to buy less junky things so that when I'm emotionally eating, I'm not just mainlining sugar right down my gullet. <laughs> just biting into a big piece of kale yeah. while sobbing. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a very accurate picture of my evenings, is feasting on kale. <laughs> I still eat candy, but Becky, like you, I definitely try to just buy stuff that's, like, real chocolate. Or, you know, alternately, like, if I want cookies, like, I'll make cookies rather than buying store-bought, like, pre-baked cookies. Hey. Not that they're not a lovely treat sometimes. They're literally right next to me, and they're half gone already. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're gonna work through those cases of cookies together, because that's what teamwork is all about. But yeah, I was definitely a kid who absolutely loved candy way too much. And I'm an adult who still enjoys his candy, but much less often. And yeah, Becky, exactly like you said, like my tastes have changed so much in my like palate for sweet foods. I think it's either desensitized or it's been like resensitized in the absence of, you know, for instance, eating like sugar cereal every single morning. So when I do eat that stuff now, I'm like, oh God, why did I? ever like this and thankfully that stops me from binging way too much of it i ate a snickers bar and a reese's cup on the way here (laughs) (laughs) yes childhood me is very jealous yes (laughs) so for the record i stopped to buy reese's pieces for this podcast taping and could not find them in the entire store not a big pack not small packs supply chain issues They had, like, a million kinds of, like, Reese's, like, Reese's Sticks and Reese's Loops. I think I made that one up. I thought you were going to say Reese's Lube. I thought you were going to say Lube as well. It probably exists. (laughs) Again, it does not legally count as either peanut butter or lubricant. And because they didn't have that, I bought cookies that had Reese's Pieces in them. But while I was looking for the candy, I actually was hungry on the way over here and didn't have time to, like, eat anything proper. So I was like, wow, Snickers, (laughs) that's supposed to satisfy your hunger, right? That's what the the advertising tells me. (laughs) And they were, like, two for one or something, so I got two. And, yeah, they're not fulfilling. (laughs) They're really not. You don't feel satisfied? I don't. Yeah, I I sort of... (laughs) 
<laughs> bit into it and I was like, mm, like <laughs> this is just like a sugar bomb. And yeah, I mean, I don't eat that kind of stuff very often anymore. Like maybe on a road trip, I might go into a gas station and get a candy bar. But um, absolutely, road trips like all rules are off. Like yeah. road rules are oh, totally fast different. food. Like uh, yeah, it's, That's it's right. horrible. Like those terrible do- prepackaged donuts that are like yes, I donuts. don't know what they're made of. Donuts. <laughs> yes. Yes. In general, like I will eat candy. Like when there's like a Halloween mm-hmm. bowl of candy in front of me, I will eat it. Especially like starting with the Snickers and then working <laughs> down through various chocolates until I get to fruit flavored things, which I don't like as much. But I use this opportunity to like reminisce on some possibly gross candies from childhood that I remember that I may or may not still be around, such as whatchamacallit. I don't even know what that is. I absolutely remember That's a candy, right? Yeah, it was like, a bar. But it's not chocolate? No, it's, it's got it chocolate. chocolate. It's got yeah. chocolate and I think like crisped rice, like a rice crispy. Like a wafer, yeah. Oh. And like, and a wafer, like cookie wafer. Well, Kit Kat was okay. I've never been a Kit Kat Kit Kats person. were terrible. I ate them. Oh, I ate them. Like a machine. But see, I would always reach for like a Twix over a Kit oh, Kat. Oh, for sure. Because sure. like the, the Twix has the caramel. It's got the cookie the crunch. Caramel. It's got the chocolate coating. Speaking of which, Caramello. That was another favorite. Caramello. I don't know if that's Did, did you ever eat Rolo? Which yes, were like, I liked Rolo too. Yeah. I'd forgotten about Rolo. Guys, this conversation is, is making me dread... <laughs> parenting my child who will do anything for jelly beans <laughs> she will anything. kill a guy she offered to kill a guy for me if i'd get her cookies i don't doubt that <laughs> she will do anything for treats and i have to somehow navigate There's a song this about it. <laughs> yes I have to navigate this as her mom. And it's very hard because I want her to not be afraid of these foods, but I don't want her to like eat too much. But it's not just Halloween. Every time there's a holiday at her preschool, she comes home with like 10 bags of candy. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's hard because if you restrict it too much, then that might be bad and that might make them crave it like forever. But if you indulge them too much, then they also might just get too used to it. So yeah, it's I I get it. It's a hard, hard line to find. Charleston Jew. Do you remember? A Charleston shoe. I remembered, but I did not like Charleston shoes. Like as a kid, you're constantly trying to eat things that are too hard or too sour. <laughs> like as some kind of an endurance test, like lemon yes. heads or things that are super hot. Those are early benchmarks for your achievement as a child. I feel like Charleston shoe is the kid equivalent of like doing five <laughs> shots of Jack Daniels or something like that. Then you're getting into like lemon heads and like atomic warheads in particular, which were the fireball whiskey of their time. Time. Or jawbreakers. Like, who thought that or was a good idea? Or jawbreakers, exactly. So I think my most consistent from, like, childhood to now would be Junior Mints. Oh, wow. Which I find them to be a very classy candy. Like, that's, that's my now my, like, go-to. Like, if I'm at a movie, like, I feel, like, pretty sophisticated if I'm popping <laughs> a junior think that my classiest gutter candy at the movie theater was always snow caps. I like snow caps. Snow caps were, like, have those. chocolate chips flocked with little balls of sugar. Like, little candy balls. They made a little crunchy sound in your teeth. That was my, like, just for the movies candy. I would not take a second glance at snowcaps in a store, but at the movie theater I would reach for them. Well, everything looks better in the dark. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Well, speaking of movies...
Steven Allen Spielberg was born on December 18, 1946, in Cincinnati, Ohio. His childhood drew him ever closer to Hollywood, with moves to Phoenix, Arizona when he was a child, and Saratoga, California when he was in his teens. His father was a software engineer who was always working, and thus a rather absent figure in his youth. As a child, being the only Jewish kid in his neighborhood, he said he felt like an alien. It's relevant to the theme of the episode. Remember that for later. <laughs> we should have a tone that's a like... Chime. That he had an absent father. That's a big thing in his movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This is an official Daddy Issues episode. <laughs> Candy and Daddy Issues. His parents were strict about watching TV... When they would go out, his father would cover the TV with a blanket and strategically place hairs in particular places on the blanket so he would know <laughs> if it moved. Wow. That's disgusting. Spielberg would memorize the position of the hairs and replace them <laughs> after watching TV all night. Spielberg says he didn't see a lot of classic films when he was younger, but he did make films with his father's 8mm camera, first editing in camera and later actually editing by hand in a way that was very sophisticated for a teenager. He was enrolled as a student at Cal State Long Beach, but his real education came as he interned on the Universal Studios lot in the mid-60s. When the internship ended, he continued to find excuses to show up and watch other filmmakers at work. He was kicked off two different Hitchcock sets, one after he made Joss. <laughs> I just love the idea that the guy who just made, like, the biggest amount of money in the studio's history was still just like, oh, I want to see what Hitchcock is doing. And Hitchcock is like, no, no, get off my set. (laughs) I find it so strange that Hitchcock and Spielberg were alive at the same time. Yeah. Working at the same time. Because you, like, especially in his early films, Spielberg was very influenced by Hitchcock. So it's like, yeah, it just seems weird to be influenced by someone that you're right next door to. But yeah, it was Hitchcock's last movies he made were in this era when Spielberg was basically Mm -hmm. making his first ones. Spielberg tried to show executives his 8mm movies, but no one was interested in such a crude format, so he shot the short film Amblin in 35mm in 1968. That's not Amblin like the studio, it's Amblin, like ambling, but with an apostrophe. (laughs) My short film's called Amblin Entertainment. Do you know what it was about? I saw it in the Spielberg class. You must have been <laughs> absent that day. Um, it was like hippie kids on the road or something. I don't remember it very well. Oh, so it's literally like a journey. They're literally ambling. Okay. It's not very Spielbergy, And he said that he was doing it to get attention because this is what was popular at the time is like Easy Rider. Yeah. Like he was trying I to do that. That wasn't his style, but I guess it works. And he also mentioned that there were so many political filmmakers at the time and people like, you know, making films and being kind of radical. And he was like not interested in any of that. And that he was like, kind of posing at the time of trying to be one of them. That got him a contract directing television for $275 a week at a time when TV directors and crews were industry veterans with an average age around 50. How old was he at this point? Like 21. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, like really young. And he looked young, too. He didn't have his beard yet? (laughs) Mm -mm. His first project was Night Gallery, starring the legendary Joan Crawford, who bumped at a kid who looked about 17, tasked with directing her. Unlike a lot of the big filmmakers who came up at this time, who went over budget and over schedules, Spielberg had to be really disciplined in TV. He would have simply been fired if he'd, like, gone rogue and said, no, like, I'm doing it my way. And he also had to take the projects he was given, episodes of shows like Columbo that wouldn't have been his first choice for something to make, but he treated them like mini-movies 
series and did them with a bolder and more innovative style of shooting than most TV directors ever attempted at the time. He did more cinematic wide shots instead of the close-ups that were so prevalent on TV because screens were very small back then. And that got him noticed. And Spielberg also couldn't really have an ego in TV, which I think you can see like resonating throughout the rest of his career as opposed to like Francis Ford Coppola or George Lucas who like got their way like really early in their career and then like in some ways kind of collapsed in on their own ass like <laughs> later in their careers because they had too much like power. And I also think there's a through line of Spielberg's career where he didn't just reject the more radical or political filmmaking styles. I also think he pretty explicitly rejected the whole auteur theory and all of that approach to filmmaking. And I mean, to whatever extent those other filmmakers like Coppola really fully embraced that, all of those people were real collaborators as well. I definitely think that like Spielberg, even though he does have a mark that he leaves as a director, doesn't center himself in the storytelling in the way that those other filmmakers have. To me, it always feels like Spielberg thinks of the audience first and how is the best way to present the story that will get the best reaction out of the audience. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think if he, like, did assert himself like a Francis Ford Coppola, like, I think his movies probably have enough of him in there that he could, like, make us see them as his thing if he wanted to, and he just doesn't have the desire to do that. Like, I just don't think he... I mean, I don't know him personally, but, like, he seems like a very generous person, like someone who collaborates well with other people and has, like, really good relationships with other people. So I think, like, he genuinely, yeah, just does want to, you know, like collaborate with people and some of the interviews I read he was just like yeah like I don't have an ego if someone has a better idea than me then we just do that idea he doesn't have any like desire to just like get his way there's a Spielberg documentary, I believe, on HBO, and the whole documentary is basically people saying nice things about Spielberg, and and that's it. <laughs> There's no drama or conflict. It's just like, yeah, I loved working with him. He's great. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the idea that Steven Spielberg doesn't have an ego is silly, but he doesn't center it pathologically. <laughs> <laughs> like other filmmakers have. I guess, like, relative, most people have an ego. And so I think... David O. Russell, I think we can compare. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd rather work with Spielberg than David O. Russell, or... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, like, yeah, if you go to Spielberg at, like, the Oscars, and be like, Spielberg, fuck you! He's gonna be like, no, fuck you! Like... <laughs> I did it, and he did. <laughs> I just, I found it interesting in a, in a documentary. It's like they couldn't really find any. They're just like, yeah, well, he's nice to his crews. And <laughs> but a documentary about Steven Spielberg is not going to make room for someone who would shit talk him or had a bad experience with them. That's not how those work. I mean, I'm sure he's <laughs> you know, like snapped like, at people or, you know, like had a bad day. Like, I'm sure he hasn't been an angel, but like, you can just tell that like people have had a better experience working with him than a lot of other people. That's fair. I, that's I think fair. in that documentary, and I forget the movie but i think he did have a certain ego during the making of a movie and i i really wish i could remember it but then i think it was who's his longtime producing partner kathleen kennedy she went to him and was like stop being an asshole and he's like okay (laughs) (laughs) and he was never an asshole again like i think he had his little ego moment and then and then he was like okay yeah i do think that kathleen kennedy has a lot to do with spielberg's success even if only in that sense of being able to check him Mm mm-hmm Oh, well, it worked. Yeah. Well, she had a lot of great ideas, too. I know, like, she yeah, was responsible she for, has. like, various ideas on, on these films. So Spielberg's first feature film, sort of, was Duel, released in 1971, when Spielberg was 25. It debuted in theaters in Europe and on TV in the U.S. In many ways, it is modeled on 
on a classic Western showdown between a man and a machine, or a modern man and a more primal man, as a suburban husband finds himself battling the faceless driver of a tanker truck, whose identity and motivations we never learn. In many ways, Duel is the first Spielberg monster movie with the truck playing the same role as the shark in Jaws or the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. I saw Duel in the yeah. Spielberg class that I audited. Oh, yeah? <laughs> uh, it's a good, you know, early film. Yeah, it's super, super simple. But as far as being, like, one of their first projects, like, I thought it, was, it held up. Have you seen Duel? I have not. I've, like, only heard good things about it, but it's like, I, I'm, again, I don't get, a, like, a unified enough Spielberg vibe from all his movies that I feel like I have to be a completist. You don't have to. I would only watch it if you wanted to be a completist. Yeah. It's interesting as an artifact in Spielberg's filmography. Totally. I watched it again a few days ago, and I think it's great, actually. Really? Like, yeah, okay. like, it surprised me, because I kind of remembered it as Becky did. But watching it now, it's just, like, it's really perfectly done. It's, like, very, it's tight, you know, it's relatively short, but it's just, like, it's a really perfect suspense movie, like, Hitchcockian in certain ways, and just... Twilight Zone-y, kind yeah. of. Yeah. But there's also, like, this deeper layer that I think you could read into it about, like, a modern man who is, like, a salesman and, like, a sportier car versus, like, this more, like, kind of primal man that we don't even see. But he's in this super, like, masculine, like, big tinker truck. And I think, like, there is, like, subtext there if you want to read into it. Although it also just works as cars driving and crashing and, and things like that. Spielberg's next film was The Sugarland Express in 74, about outlaws on the run from the cops, starring Goldie Hawn. And that one is one that I think does feel a little bit more like he was trying to do a 60s movie, like an Easy Rider. I haven't seen it, but I've seen a ton of material from it. I worked on a photo book of John Williams' career, and that was one of the movies that he scored. So I've been curious about it, but again, it's like not one that I've like sought out. Have you seen it? In the Spielberg class, but yeah. I don't remember it at all. That was the one time I saw it. Yeah, I watched it not that long ago. Like, it's I think it's okay, but that's not one that I would say, like, definitely go back and watch. I think he tried to do a few different things, like, early in his career, and I, I think that's great, but he definitely found something that worked for him in the movies that we'll talk about later. So after that was a little movie called Jaws, released in 1975. Uh, Jaws was a hit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for the explanation. I've got all the knowledge here. <laughs> Jaws became the biggest movie of all time. The first film ever to gross $100 million in North America. Even more than Duel, I would say Jaws showed off Hitchcock's influence on Spielberg, with an emphasis on suspense over shock value, making what is unseen more frightening than what is seen. And he uses that vertigo shot. That was the literally the next repulsion thing. Repulsion and attraction. Mm -hmm. I'll let you talk, Chris. That's okay. No, <laughs> no, no. We want to hear from the auditor. <laughs> we want to hear from the person who didn't I'm pay. I'm the expert. <laughs> I didn't have to buy any of the books or take any of the tests. They were helpful for this podcast. <laughs> Also, like Hitchcock, having the violence in the story kick off with the death of a naked wet blonde. <laughs> just like Psycho. So now we'll just pause for Jaws. <laughs> you guys have seen Jaws, I, I assume. Yeah, I feel like we need to have our own podcast episode on Jaws because it seems like it's a behemoth on its own. 
especially in the Spielberg canon. Yes, I've seen Jaws many times. Uh, it is great. <laughs> I want to do a Jaws episode primarily for Jaws 3D and Jaws the Revenge, where Jaws <laughs> takes revenge. I didn't actually see Jaws until I was a fully grown adult human boy. <laughs> um, and I was shocked how much I loved it. I really had thought that, like, you know, coming to a movie as a full-grown adult in a movie that was that hyped up by literally everyone in my life, and that was already, you know, at least 20 or 30 years old by the time I saw it, I would have thought that it had aged some, but it is absolutely fucking timeless. It truly does have the best of Spielberg, in my view, and also the best of a influence from Hitchcock in terms of really, truly knowing the value of suspense and the value of visual storytelling over having everything be driven by dialogue. Yeah, I think Jaws is still a pretty much perfect movie. Correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then next was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We're focusing on E.T. for most of this episode, but in some ways you can't talk about E.T. unless you talk about Close Encounters first. The film's origins date back to 1964, when Spielberg made a two-hour and 15-minute sci-fi film called Firelight about UFOs. Made on a budget of $500, the film was shown at a local cinema and generated a profit of $1 by grossing $501. <laughs> the cast was mainly from Arcadia High School theater productions, and the the plot was about investigating a series of colored lights in the sky and the subsequent disappearance of people, including a unit of soldiers and a young girl, and there was a subplot involving marital discord. So for his actual budget <laughs> adaptation of this, Spielberg worked with Paul Schrader, the writer of Taxi Driver, first. Not surprisingly, this was not a match. <laughs> <laughs> Spielberg called Schrader's script one of the most embarrassing screenplays ever professionally turned into a major film studio or director. Oof. <laughs> they do not have simpatico sensibilities yeah. at all. No. Yeah, not really. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. For $100, can anyone tell me what the first and second kind are? Yes, I can. <laughs> Damn it, you looked at that. <laughs> Do you not want me to say? No, go ahead. Let's see if I get this right. There's five encounters mm -hmm. in total. The first one is seeing? Is just seeing an, an, an alien? The second is... Erotic? Is he, is he right? No. No. <laughs> no. Damn it. The second is them leaving proof? Like, leaving evidence? that they mm -hmm. were there and the third is communicating something yes, like that pretty much okay yeah so this was a classification for ufo sightings created by j allen hynek an astronomer at the ohio state university who was hired by the air force to investigate ufos spielberg paid him a thousand dollars to use these classifications in the movie's title so he did those the the top three and then i guess someone added like two more later that mm. were more involved there was no sex sex kind <laughs> no. no fifth one isn't butt stuff i think that might be sex uh six sex Got it. Okay. <laughs> I've written it down. So we have all seen Close Encounters previously, and some of us did our homework, while others merely are trying to crash the When We Are Young <laughs> podcast. What do you guys think of Close Encounters? So I did not see this growing up. It just did not appeal to me. I saw it as an adult when I became a Spielberg completist and I wanted to see everything. I forget if I, I probably saw it in the Spielberg class. That's probably the first time I watched it like start to finish. I didn't really like it. I thought it was slow. I thought it was kind of boring. There were parts of it that I enjoyed, but it never really stuck with me. It was always something that I was like, oh, I don't want to watch that. I'd rather watch Jurassic Park. I'd rather watch E.T. But I watched it again for this podcast and I have to say, like, I get it now. <laughs> 
I think you need to be an adult. Yeah. Like, I don't think this is a kid's movie. Yeah, very much not a kid's movie. Yeah, there's lots of scary parts that I think would freak out a little, little kid. But I think it's not about aliens. It's a metaphor for there's something larger out there that is calling to you more than a career, more than family, and ignoring it can drive you insane. And it's about that drive. And I feel like kids don't really have that. It's something that you have to be a little bit older to feel like you're not doing the thing you were meant to do in this life whatever that is and in this movie it's you know the metaphor of the aliens implanting in him this drive to come seek them out but I just I felt like you have to be an adult to like get it and so it was a really great viewing experience watching this last time feeling like I really did have to grow up to to get this movie and there's you know I don't think it's like perfect but I think it's essential Spielberg there's just so many gorgeous moments I think it it did well at the box office right Mm -hmm. yeah like it's so like esoteric at the end the last third which I just think is such a phenomenal sequence with them going up the mountain and having that back and forth with music and lights it's almost seems like an art film at the end mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I was just I'm kind of blown away yeah I did like this movie as a kid but I do feel like you're right in that like part of it kind of went over my head and I think I did connect to it because I think at an early age I did sort of have that feeling of like needing to pursue film like it did in a junior way like take me away from my home and you know down to LA instead of outer space but you know I did feel that kind of calling um I agree that like like watching it this time and like really thinking about it and having been reading all of the stuff about Spielberg is I did see how personal of a film it was which is strange because it's such an effects film and such a like blockbuster not quite as big as these other films but it made a ton of money it did very well critically commercially everything so I really really was struck by yeah that character of Roy Neary played by Richard Dreyfuss and just like how much time is spent on kind of a mental breakdown that he's having where he's you know making a shape that he doesn't understand yet in his mashed potatoes and later like bringing dirt into his kitchen and like freaking out his wife to like build this mountain it's pretty extreme like what he's doing like it is behavior it's not just like oh honey you know like why are you doing that it's like he's acting like crazy like like you need to be hospitalized crazy and so I think the movie is a little unsettling when you're a kid because like you imagine like what if your dad was, you know, like that? Because Spielberg does this thing where he very much sets up suburbia, like, and this very, like, normal-seeming family, and then, like, kind of, like, dismantles it. But this family doesn't even experience the aliens besides him, and so it's like he's the one that's, like, kind of terrorizing his family early on. (laughs) Well, I guess you've noticed something that's a little strange with Dad. (laughs) It's okay, though. I'm still dead. I can't describe it. What I'm feeling. And what I'm thinking. This means something. This is important. 
And so it's a little different than I think other Spielberg movies in that there is a more internal thing with this character and and what he's going through. It painted a different portrait of a family than I think we usually see in Spielberg movies because this one is a lot less happy. Like it's really chaotic and there's a lot of screaming and the marriage doesn't seem that good. He has a lot of like families, but usually they're like sort of at the core, like a happy family, you know, and maybe they've been like split apart by something, but he doesn't usually do like domestic turmoil, like in in the household. And this movie did that. And and, like in the context of this movie, you're like, yeah, I kind of get why he would choose to go in a spaceship instead. But I think that ending where he decides to basically leave Earth and just go off in the spaceship without really any idea of where he's going, how long he'll be gone, or if he'll be back, or if these, I mean, they seem benevolent, but you know, they could just get up there and be like, ha ha, fooled you. And pull a space laser on him. I don't think so. But <laughs> just a note on that, I believe there was an interview where Spielberg said because he had an absent father at the time, yeah. he didn't really understand why his dad left. And so he thought the only reason his dad would leave him is if he went off with aliens. And so Hmm. this is almost like a justification, like, I'm going to write the story of my dad going off with aliens, because why else would he ever leave me? Yeah, and I think that ending is, like, really essential for this movie, because almost any other movie like this would end with, no, family's more important, love is more important, you know, I'm going to give up my dream just to be with my family, and, you know, that's, like, whatever, a valid other story, if it feels genuine, but that's considered the greatest thing in so many movies, so for this to say, there's actually something, like, even greater out there than this thing that we consider to be the greatest on Earth, is, like, I'm pursuing what else might be out there, I like, I still want something more than that. even though that's kind of the pinnacle for so many people. Yeah, literally every other Spielberg movie would have ended that way. You know, I really think it's been like maybe a year or two since the last time I saw Close Encounters, but I think it is the closest thing to an art film he's ever made. And I mean, one of the stars of the movie is the... French New Wave director Francois Truffaut and that influence does show a little bit. This movie, I think more so than any other Spielberg movie is way more about poetry than prose and is also way more about internal conflict than it is just about external conflict and big physical blow-ups in the world. And Becky, I agree with what you're saying thematically about how it's like for the search for something greater than yourself, but I also think it's about that much smaller search for connection and communication and just to be able to reach someone else when you know what you need to communicate you just don't know the right way to do it and that cuts across all of the conflicts in that in that whole story with Truffaut and his translator too literally with Truffaut and the translator and with the light show and all of that and yeah I just didn't have time to rewatch Close Encounters but I did see it initially as a kid have seen it multiple times as an adult I've got it on DVD I've seen it at least once in a theater and I don't know if it played like super well in a theater again it is kind of rare as a Spielberg movie where it's one of the few of his titles that I feel like I might prefer to watch by myself Mm -hmm. and just be able to be alone with my thoughts about it while watching it because it is very internal but also again like I I think he was if not at the peak of his powers then definitely he knew what he was doing because he does a really beautiful job externalizing the internal and making it dramatic, even if it's not surrounding huge action set pieces to make everything go. 
He has said in more recent interviews after making the movie that he wasn't a father or a husband while making this movie and he wouldn't have had that ending. But I'm glad he wasn't at the time because I think that ending is so, like you said, Chris, like it's so important to his arc that he should go up there. (laughs) It's aliens. Like, like, yes, like it, it just, it wouldn't have the same punch at the end if, if he didn't go up there and, and show like, this is how important this drive is like i have to do this otherwise like i'll be going crazy the rest of my life totally and it's like it's as much as he goes into everything else in the movie having the certainty or at least getting to a point where he has certainty about what's going on and what he's trying to communicate to close that loop of his character he has to choose the thing that even he doesn't know Mm -hmm. yeah spielberg isn't like considered you know one of the more daring filmmakers but i think this film is especially for where he was at the time because it he said like this was his first like really personal movie like he's a little dismissive of jaws actually like at least in the interviews that he did like at the time because i was reading a lot of the ones that he was doing like as he was making these films i love the idea that like this speaks to like filmmaking for him and that like he always had this kind of obsession with something that he needed to be doing and like luckily for him like achieved it like at a young age and then was able to like have a family and and you know, in in his case, could do both. But I liked that this film just seems, like, really revealing of who he was at this time, maybe not who he is now. He said, um, I did a little research for this. That's why I know all this. Oh, not from the auditing class (laughs) that you did? (laughs) More like Wikipedia and Google. That scene where Richard Dreyfuss is in the tub and his kids are like, cry baby, cry baby, that was Spielberg to his dad. His dad was having some sort of, like, breakdown in the tub and that, like, that just reinforces, like, this is so personal to him um his family life and just like bringing in you know actual um memories from his childhood and i think you can feel that like it feels like disturbing and personal in the way that like a very personal like indie film does when like a filmmaker makes a film of their life which you don't think of close encounters as that kind of film and you're thinking of it just sort of offhand but it it is that, especially in, in a couple of those domestic scenes. Also, just like I have to mention the score or yeah. s- specifically the six six notes, five notes. But do, yeah, do, do, it's... Five. Yeah. Five. Yeah. Yeah, I, did, I didn't want to sing it, but yeah. thank you. <laughs> Off key, but nevertheless. <laughs> you hush! <laughs> It's, it's just such a great, like, it's five notes. And I mean, a lot of people who saw the movie maybe back in the 70s could still hum that tune to you. And it's just such a great way to say this is how they communicate, like, through music, this kind of universal and, I guess, intergalactic language. Like, it's really simple, but it seems like, yeah, I guess, like, if you were communicating with, like, another species, maybe that's how you would do it. And I just think it's great that John Williams progressed from two notes in the Jaws theme to five <laughs> for Close Encounters. <laughs> He's going places. He really is. But I, I, again, I do think it's like worth pointing out the John Williamsness of it because that is such a driver of the story, and it's so iconic on its own, but also just completely inseparable from the story that it's part of. And it creates a lot of like e- kind of eerie but beautiful moments. Like they go to India, and there's a bunch of Indian guys who are all like singing these notes, and it's like it's both like scary but like mesmerizing too, mm-hmm. just because it's like they all have this like shared thing that's cool that they're all connected and kind of weird because we don't know what's going on yet. I think that one of the reasons this was such a big hit 
was it was one of the first times a movie posited that aliens would be friendly with us when usually in movies they're a threat like the foreign thing is a threat Mm -hmm. which i think was going you know like xenophobia and um trying to get us to and xenomorphobia (laughs) xenomorphobia. (laughs) soon to be a lot of (laughs) movies in america and hollywood were about like let's band together to to attack or defend ourselves against this threat. And this movie was saying they are friendly. We can be friends. We can communicate with each other. And not just that, but that we should unite to try to communicate with them. Yeah. You know, it's it's very much also like a kind of unity among humans kind of thing. Yeah, movies are still kind of coming off that like B movie of like the fifties mm-hmm. that we talked about. I think with the Thing episode, was or it? Mars Attacks, maybe. Or yeah, like I mean that? both of those were influenced by by this stuff, and I like how the movie plays with that because like the first several scenes of the aliens could be very menacing and seem very menacing. So it's like if you're seeing this movie for the first time, you probably think it's that kind of movie up until you know halfway through or whatever. So Close Encounters was like we said a big hit. It got eight Oscar nominations, including one. For best director for Spielberg, and it won two for visual effects and cinematography. Well deserved. This was also the same year that Star Wars came out and was wow. nominated for a lot of the same Oscars. Wow, really? Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. It was a big year for sci fi. <laughs> ah. Yeah, but also, like, definitely says something that it won those awards. Yeah, over Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. So Spielberg followed that movie up with 1941, <laughs> a comedy? <laughs> yeah, it needs a, at least a question mark. It's yeah. supposed to be a comedy. Yeah, it was a bomb in every sense. It was a bombity. It was a bombity. It was yeah. abominable. <laughs> Probably the less said about that, the better. Um, I saw it once a long time ago. I saw it in the Spielberg class. It was, you know, not good, but it was. It didn't feel very Spielbergy. <laughs> you demanded your money back from yeah, your from, unpaid like, from and- the class I didn't pay for. <laughs> he was still like, you know, testing out what he wanted to do. I think, and he was like, "Can I do a comedy?" Oh nope, I can't. All right. <laughs> not that he can't do a comedy. It just wasn't his style of comedy. No. It was very over the top. Uh, I'll argue that he can't do comedy. <laughs> I don't think he's really tried to do a straight comedy. Yeah, so. I don't think okay. he's a comedy director. But like, he he has funny moments in his movie, so Absolutely. it's not like he can't do that. But he's clever. He knows how to be clever and have light moments. But you're right. I think like one of the only comedies. Would you call Catch Me If You Can a comedy? Not really. No. no. And like the Terminal is like kind of like a rom com, but also Oof. yeah, it's like they're still not like outright comedy. Yeah, 1941 yeah. is supposed to be like a comedy, and it just it doesn't work. And after that came a little film called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, which did a bit better than 1941. We will come back to that in a future episode. <laughs> yeah, we can't talk about that right now. Yeah, no. It's been uh, very oft-requested by our listeners, so we will get to it. Year seven. <laughs> <laughs> Season 25 of the When We Young podcast. I mean, what does that say about Spielberg that literally, like, so many movies in his filmography could have their own episode? Like, we could have just talked forever about Close We could do powers. the whole Spielberg class. <laughs> I'll teach it. <laughs> I won't pay for it. So it was Spielberg's isolation uh, while he was filming Raiders in Tunisia that brought the theme of loneliness bubbling back and made him want to work on the scripts for E.T. Remember the goblin? You're so lame, Elliot. Oh, Michael, he came back. He came back? He came back? Oh, my God! One thing! I have absolute power. Say it. Say it! What have you got? Is it the coyote? No. Look. Okay. Now, swear it. The most excellent promise you can make. Swear 
as my only brother on our lives. Don't get so heavy, I swear. Okay, um, stand over there, and, um, you'd better take off your shoulder What? You might scare him. And, um, close your eyes. Don't push it, Elliot. I'm not coming out there until your eyes are closed. Okay, they're closed. I'm just gonna kill you. Okay, uh, swear it one more time. I have absolute, you have absolute power. Yes. <laughs> mm. So we worked with writer Melissa Matheson on that, adapting an idea he had called Night Skies about a group of sinister aliens in which one friendly alien befriended a kid. She wrote E.T. and Me in eight weeks. Mm. And Spielberg has said it was like the best first draft he ever read, and he basically used that going wow. forward. I think they added a couple things, but like most of it was there right away. What else did she write? She had done The Black Stallion before this. After this, she did something with him. I think the BFG. That might have been her yeah. last movie. She like died recently. Yeah, I asked because I remember. I thought she had died really recently. Uh, she did The Indian in the Cupboard, Kundun. Kundun, yeah. That's a really good movie. Melissa Matheson, I think, is really unsung. I mean, all women screenwriters are unsung, but... Yeah, I think, like, when she died, I remember there was a lot of, like, love kind of outpouring for her. But I think she probably did run up, because she did this big blockbuster movie that I would imagine it wasn't easy for her to get work. Which is crazy, because it was the biggest movie of all time. But I don't know, like, that she immediately went on. I don't think she was offered, like, whatever the next attempt at E.T. was. No, she... I'm looking at her filmography. She did the kick the can segment in the Twilight Zone movie that Spielberg directed. There's a lot of like not really memorable stuff here. And then she did the the BFG and I I believe it came out after she died. Mm -hmm. So this script was owned by Columbia Pictures at the time uh, who Spielberg had done Close Encounters with. They felt that the project had little commercial potential. (laughs) So Spielberg asked Universal to buy it for 1 million and they also agreed that 5% of the profits would go to Columbia. So Columbia Columbia now thinks that E.T. was their most successful movie of 1982, even though they didn't make it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's how successful it was. Yeah. (laughs) I think Columbia should have been made to pay them 5%. (laughs) Like, fuck you, Columbia. In retrospect, yeah. In other corporate blunders, (laughs) (laughs) the Mars Company thought E.T. would scare children away from their candy and did not allow (laughs) M&M's. not wrong, but we'll get to that. So they went to Hershey about Hershey's Kisses, but Hershey wanted to do Reese's Pieces instead. Hershey's Kisses would not work. Can you imagine E.T. like having to unwrap those with his little fingers? That would have been half the fucking movie. Because <laughs> he was eating them, right? He probably just wouldn't have been eating them. He would have just been collecting them. But. Yeah. I don't know if you actually see him eating them. Because yeah, at one point he has like a handful of them. But I feel like... Well, I think he... Wait, does he actually... He eat... gives them to Elliot. He gives them back. So he could have had kisses and then they would have melted he'd be like wiping chocolate his <laughs> chocolate hands all over elliot it would have been weird it just wouldn't have worked <laughs> it would have been weird can i tell you that i did not know that reese's pieces were even a thing like i didn't know of this candy what Until what do you mean? not on my radar reese's pieces are delicious but i didn't grow up i ate the reese's peanut butter cups but didn't you see E.T. and did you think they were fake? Well, we'll get to that. I didn't, oh, okay. I didn't see it very well. So, uh, yes, uh, the sales <laughs> of Reese's Pieces went up from the exposure. Artist Carlo Rimbaldi designed the animatronics, basing the head in part on faces of Albert Einstein and Ernest Hemingway. Wow. <laughs> 
Two little people and a 12-year-old born without legs. So he was like walking on his hands. Oh, wow. Okay. Were inside the E.T. costume at various times. So the E.T. head was on top of their head and there were puppeteers like making like the facial expressions and stuff separately. But then there was also someone in the body, unless Mm. it was just like a close-up on his head. So there was a lot going on there. Spielberg had all the puppeteers and anyone like involved in the visual effects like hidden so that the kids could just interact with the puppet itself and and feel like it was real. And apparently like Drew Barrymore thought it was real, and that's why she's crying so hard when E.T. is dying. And there were little slits in E.T.'s neck that they could see out of when they were in there. Oh my god. E.T.'s voice was provided by chain smoker Pat Walsh, who earned three hundred and eighty dollars for this oh, film. Jesus. No. I hope they gave her a lifetime supply of Reese's pieces as well. I hope they gave her a lifetime supply of cigarettes. She <laughs> Just two packs a day. I honestly does not surprise me hearing that. <laughs> Other contributors to E.T.'s voice in various ways included Deborah Winger, Spielberg's sleeping wife sick with a cold, a burp from a film professor, Tom Waits, <laughs> otters, horses, and raccoons. I'm sorry, let's go back to him. His wife was sleeping. He just like pulled out a recorder. I what? don't know how that <laughs> happened. I, I did not dig deep on that factoid. <laughs> I feel like that's something we need to delve more into about Spielberg. <laughs> E.T. was first screened at the Cannes Film Festival and then opened in theaters June 11th, 1982. <laughs> How did the Cannes audience react? This extraterrestrial. <laughs> There's only two ways they Fuck react, him. Seth. It's Fuck booing him. or it's a s- seven-hour ovation. I bet they did both. <laughs> it was a 15-minute standing ovation. Yeah. I bet they booed it, and then seven hours standing ovation. Can never neutral. Throwing lit cigarettes at the stage the whole time. The can audience um, is never like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the French are not really meh people, culturally speaking. The reviews were very positive. Todd McCarthy of Variety said, E.T. the Extraterrestrial may be the best Disney film Disney never made. Hmm. Result will be a summertime bonanza for Distrib Universal. In short, E.T. equals B.O. Well, I don't know about that last part, but uh, I get what they mean, but... He looks like he could be stinky. (laughs) Honestly, those arms are long, and those pits are deadly. Does he have sweat glands? (laughs) (laughs) Save that for the sequel. I couldn't find a bad review from a movie reviewer, but political commentator George Will... (laughs) (laughs) What? ...wrote a piece called, Well, I Don't Love You, (laughs) E.T. We'll get what kind of person he is from reading this. The hot breath of summer is on America, but few children feel it. They are indoors in the dark, watching the movie E.T. and being basted with three subversive ideas. Children are people. Adults are not. Science is sinister. Surely children are unmanageable enough without gratuitously inoculating them with anti-adultism. Steven Spielberg, the perpetrator of E.T., should be reminded of the charge that got Socrates condemned to drink hemlock, corrupting the youth of Athens. What the fuck is this? What? what? George Will is a right-wing dipshit commentator. He wore a bow tie before Tucker Carlson did. He was like the Tucker Carlson of his day who would just get trotted out to say the dumbest shit you've ever heard, but in a patrician, condescending enough tone of voice that the right idiots would agree with him. I got that from from his review. Yeah, see, exactly. No, Chris, you were right. You were exactly correct. Uh, yeah, that guy, not notwithstanding, everyone loved E.T., 
uh, critics, audiences, the public sided with Variety in, in their review. Yeah, E.T. was an immediate hit, breaking many box office records, including the most weeks spent at number one, 16 weeks, a record it still holds. It was still in over 500 theaters a year after its release, earning over $100,000 a day. Wow. Wow. It beat Star Wars to be the number one film of all time, with $359 million in the U.S. and $619 million worldwide. And then more money with two successful re-releases in 1985 and 2002. And then it was released on home video and made a lot more money. (laughs) (laughs) But not until 1988, parts of the VHS were colored green to help prevent piracy. I have one of those tapes here. What do you mean tape? Like the movie? Like the plastic on the VHS is like partially green. It's the, I think it's, I think on the one I have, it's the the lid that flips up Mm -hmm. to reveal the tape itself. And I have no idea how on earth that would conceivably... I think so that you couldn't, like, make a copy on a regular tape and then sell it. And then sell it. I bet that's it. Obviously, it made a ton of money on merchandise as well. It was nominated for nine Oscars, winning four. Two for sound, one for visual effects, and one for score. Duh. (laughs) It lost Best Picture to Gandhi, which was directed by Richard Ottenborough. Oh, lordy. A.K.A. John Hammond, who said that E.T. should have won. (laughs) It absolutely should have. Um, I'm sorry, I love Attenborough, but but Gandhi is a ponderous, boring movie. But perfectly in line with what they would... Absolutely. What would win an Oscar back then. Or today. Yeah, he even said, Attenborough said, I make more mundane movies like E.T. (laughs) So he was very much in on that sentiment. It also won Spielberg a UN Peace Medal. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Good for him. Just throw it in the pile of trophies. Yeah, yeah. yeah he didn't give a shit. <laughs> so, do you guys remember when you first saw E.T., or do you need to phone home and ask someone? <laughs> I absolutely had and still have the VHS tape. Definitely makes sense that it came out in 1988. I remember seeing E.T. starting from when I was around preschool or kindergarten age. I would have been really young. I remember just being really young watching that movie. And I think I remembered being slightly scared of the creature uh, at that time, but definitely like fully understanding the story of it. And I remember really being deeply emotionally touched by the friendship of Elliot Nitti and very saddened when he leaves at the end of the movie. I know that I've seen E.T. in theaters, like Close Encounters, so I'm sure that I saw it in the theater in 2002 for that re-release. So, I mean, I I saw it really early and loved it from basically the first time I saw it. And I, I would say, like, alongside, along with Indiana Jones, those would have been the first Spielberg movies I ever saw. Had you seen it recently, or...? Was that one of the last times you'd watched it? No, actually. It had been a really long time since I'd seen E.T. Like, there was a lot that I didn't remember from it. Like I said, I'd always loved the movie, so I don't think there was any particular reason I didn't revisit it. But it had been a really good long while, at least a decade, maybe more, since the last time I'd seen it. I did not grow up watching this movie at all. Why, was it too juvenile for you? It was too scary! He was ugly! (laughs) (laughs) We had a plastic E.T. doll. I mean, my house was basically a hoarder's house with my mom, but, like, I would be digging through toys to look for something else and find the E.T. doll and, like, throw it. (laughs) (laughs) 
The E.T. doll would watch you sleep. Yeah, like I, or I like bury it. Like I, he's ugly. Like I didn't like it. Poltergeist, but with Becky and E.T. doll. I'd watch Poltergeist growing up, but not E.T. The way you're body shaming E.T. right now is really hurtful. Because E.T. is not going to hear this. But your friends who are really narrow and skinny and have protruding heads on <laughs> necks that are like stilts are going to hear this. He was horrifying. Um, I did not like looking at him, so I didn't watch this movie. And I even remember being in fourth grade having a Halloween party. We had a trivia contest that my mom was leading. And one of the questions was like, what does E.T. eat? And people were like raising their hands being like, Reese's Pieces. And I didn't know. Because I never watched the movie and I didn't know what racist pieces were. Children. <laughs> Seriously. Um, yeah, I hadn't watched it. It was in pop culture, so I think I like just kind of like soaked it in through various clips or it was on TV. I don't think I ever sat down to watch it. Um, I did in high school have a, a CD of John Williams' like best scores and E.T. was on it and I always liked the score. But it wasn't, like, a movie I had any nostalgia for or any, like... But something, like, changed in college. And I don't know if it was the Spielberg class, but I have a feeling it was. Because I went and saw E.T. in the big movie theater on campus. And despite it being, I believe, the version with extra CGI E.T. scenes, which was not good, I remember feeling so captivated by it. You know, at this point, I'm, like, 21, 22, and I can handle his looks. (laughs) can handle what he looks like at that point. Your standards went down over the years. <laughs> um, and I was, oh, you know, and also like a kid, I would go on the E.T. ride mm. at, uh, at Universal. And not saying that that's the movie, but like, you know, that's how I huh. would soak up the character E.T. Because I, I would go to Universal um, quite a few times on trips. And so I watched it in college and I remember being like, I want that on DVD. I don't want this shitty version to be the last I see with the CGI. And I believe instead of guns, it was flashlights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they CGI the guns and flashlights. It was just a whole wrong, it was wrong. And so I bought it on, I have the special version and that's what I have on DVD. And you know, not once have I ever put in the special version. But ever since that moment, I have thought that this is just one of the most beautiful movies and it has been a favorite of mine like since then. Watching E.T. is one of my first movie memories. Wow. Wow. One of my most vivid movie-watching memories. And one of my earliest childhood memories in general. This is how I remember it. It could be that time has distorted things, (laughs) but I don't think so. I'm going to live and die by this description of my E.T. watching experience. So I guess it must have been 1988 when E.T. was finally released on VHS. My parents brought home the E.T. video cassette for us to watch. We did own it when I was a kid, so either they bought it this first time or maybe they had rented it. But they wanted me to watch it, and I refused. (laughs) The poster had a big scary moon on it and a creature (laughs) attacking a boy on a bicycle. Attacking? Wasn't even a close-up of E.T. the moon scared you? The moon's gonna eat that It was an ominous moon. It's very big. It was a very moonfall-looking situation. Ominous. I was scared out of my mind to even watch a single frame of this movie. But they still made you? My parents held me down. What? I was kicking and screaming. (laughs) It took both of them to sit me down in front of the TV and pry my eyes open to watch this movie. Why was it so important to them? I don't know. 
I'm sure that this happened. Of all the things that happened, this is one of them. I think they would deny it and maybe have brainwashed themselves out of <laughs> out of this experience, but I will swear by it that this happened. And so, like, the movie started and I was trembling and, like, and, like very afraid because the, the opening of this movie is very scary for a it's little eerie. while. It's eerie. So yeah. E.T. stands for emotional torture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I ended up liking the movie because, like, the cute parts happened and then I was into it. And I don't remember being bothered by the end is, again kind of like emotionally harrowing but i think by that point i was okay but anyway so that is my et experience so your parents were right <laughs> to hold you down and make you watch it that's open for interpretation I think. <laughs> yeah that's one way of putting it <laughs> becky objectively pro torture on the podcast you heard it i personally don't support torture yeah but i do i don't know Wait, which one of us is a parent <laughs> <laughs> I would never show this to my child. Well, until she's older. <laughs> I wasn't that much older. I was five. So, I mean, my mom listens to this. She'll probably try and deny it. I think it's true. I'll hear about that. <laughs> so, um, I grew up with this movie. I was never strapped down and had my eyes. Like, I didn't have a Clockwork Orange experience with it after this. But, yeah, I, I watched it occasionally. It wasn't a movie I don't think I watched a ton of. But yeah, I saw it in the Spielberg class and studied it, and then I bought it on 4K, because it was one of the few movies available on 4K a few years ago, and it looks really great. Like, especially older movies, I think, look really good in that format, so that was the last time I watched it. I still know so many Spielberg movies, like, every moment, like Jurassic Park, Jaws. This is not one of those. There are still, like, moments. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Obviously, I know the story overall, but, like, I'm not... Like, oh, then she says this, and then this happened. So it feels a little bit new to me when I watch it still. And what did you guys think of watching it now? Is E.T. still ugly? (laughs) Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, Chris. (laughs) And I don't behold any beauty in him. Okay. We're here. We are here. Where are you from? What can I say? I I still hold the same feelings of like this movie is gorgeous, like poetry, like just beautiful. Like it's got to be up there with like peak Spielberg. His movies are always, they always combine wonder and excitement and danger and adventure and magic. And this is like the epitome of that experience. What I find interesting, especially in this last rewatch, is that, again, I don't think this is for children. A child could like it, but it feels like it's made for adults to tap into their nostalgia of being a child and what it felt like 
to be insecure and or feel abandoned or feel lonely. It's like going back to your past and having that wish fulfillment that people, because of Elliot's journey, like he's not respected in the beginning, but then he becomes like the leader and being respected by older kids, by, by adults and having some power and authority at a time where you had none. I think it's beautiful and it's not about an alien. It's about finding connection with someone at a time when you feel lost and alone. This is like what Spielberg just does best, like taps into feeling, like very strong feelings. And I just, I think it's gorgeous. Like the moment, the the whole sequence where at the very end where the kids are on their bikes and they're about to be like stopped by the police and instead they like fly in the air and they go over the moon, or I guess it's the sun in that sequence, up until the end is like one of my most favorite sequences in a movie ever. I think the score is absolutely like perfect matching feelings and emotions and what's going on in screen and just that image of the bikes over the moon and then the sun like it doesn't get better <laughs> for me like that is just pure movie magic in every way so i could keep talking about things i love about this movie but i think it's pretty perfect honestly yeah i've got to fully agree in fact this time around the moment where they're about to be caught and it looks like they're just like trapped on all sides by the police and by the scary NASA astronaut boogeyman and E.T. like uses some of his last remaining power to help them like take off and fly literally like fly into the sunset that's when I started openly weeping (laughs) and I didn't cry as much near the end as I expected to but just that moment of just pure escape in the middle of what looks like to those characters would have been the greatest moment of danger beyond what they could even imagine. There are guys holding walkie-talkies right in front of them. (laughs) They're going to talk at them. There are just so many moments of this movie that are absolutely sublime and thrilling and visually stunning at the same time. For me this time, it wasn't just the John Williams of it, but also, like, I want to shout out Carol Littleton, the editor. I think it's a perfectly edited movie. Melissa Matheson, the writer, like, I really do think this is a nearly perfectly written movie. I don't know any way that it could have been really any more economical, especially in terms of dialogue. Pretty economical. Um, Alan Davia, the cinematographer, did a lot of other amazing work in his career, but I think this is just some of the most stunning cinematography in any movie ever. And just all of these collaborators are absolutely MVPs of this movie because it so successfully puts you in the point of view of Elliot. And I, I totally see what you mean, Becky, and I agree with you that it is also a movie for adults, but I also think it's a movie for kids. And it's especially a movie like for kids that kind of extols the virtue and the need to to have friends and to find people who do like accept you for who you are and relate to you and communicate with you on the level that you're at, you know, because really most of the humans in Elliot's life just refuse to do that. You know, like his his mom is, you know, from everything they talk about, it seems like their father divorced them and left. I think they say at one point that they're separated. I love the mom that's, uh, she's played by Dee Wallace. I think she's tremendous and she's very clearly very loving, but in a lot of ways it feels like she's kind of being pulled in a lot of different directions in her life and isn't able to be attentive to all of her kids in the way that she wants to. And so the way that Elliot as a character is kind of forced to navigate 
navigate this world where, in a way, it feels like he's kind of a big brother, like, even to his older brother, but especially to his younger sister. And the way that it feels like he needs to be the adult in the home, I feel like it engages with all of that just in a narratively and dramatically very, very effective and subtle and, again, just super economical way. And I think it does all of that without really ever being cloying. Like, even the moments that are kind of syrupy sweet, like, to me, they all feel earned. And I also especially want to shout out, like, the animatronics and the animation and and acting behind E.T. the character, because it is obvious that it's a physical object and that it's inhabiting space and moving around in space and just the way that it, like, flops around and shuffles when it walks is so funny, but never silly or stupid. And it always feels, like, lived in, and it always feels like it's a live creature that is thinking and feeling dude his eyes are like wet yeah they they blink they blink i was really stunned by that this time too i don't know my memory of et is always that he's like very like still and just like his neck moves but that's not actually he's like running all over the place Mm -hmm. in this movie like i just had like a a different kind of vision of him for for whatever reason maybe because i always see him like in a basket (laughs) in the in the bike (laughs) Becky, like you were saying, like, watching it as an adult, it had a lot more emotional resonance for me. And I mean, even just basically, if not the opening shot, then in that opening scene, they're kind of looking down and really what it, what the vantage point that they're looking down on the city from is, it's Mulholland Drive and you're looking over Los Angeles. And I mean, I don't know if that's exactly where they filmed it. It's near a lake in California. There's a few places. There's Some of it is in the valley, like the San Fernando Valley. I think it's supposed to be like mid-California, like deep in the suburbs, not... Redwoods. Sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because there's redwoods in the... In but the neighborhoods were closer but to But the LA. neighborhoods were definitely closer to LA. And what that, that opening shot just literally made like every memory come flooding back to me of the days earlier on in my life when I could afford gas to just be able to drive around aimlessly and would like go up to Mulholland Drive in the middle of the night and just look out over all of Los Angeles. And this movie does such a good job of conveying a sense of wanting to and being able to like escape and finally like get out on your own and experience the world by yourself or with just your a couple of your friends. And there is such a thrill and a nostalgia in that that I just really found especially beautiful and moving this time. I think this movie has such a reputation for being emotional and maybe that's sometimes misconstrued into being it being kind of sappy if people haven't seen it recently. And I think even though I like this movie and have seen it fairly recently, like I still sometimes fall into that trap of, yeah, that's great, but like also dismissing it at the same time because there are other Spielberg movies that are cooler or have even more impressive effects or Jaws is scarier. So... There's always, like, something that's more something else that would appeal more to my sensibilities than, like, a family movie, which is not a genre that I am usually, like, super fond of, since I don't have kids and... and or family. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jeez. Now I'm starting to feel like what it's like to be an abandoned child. Ouch. <laughs> There we Thank go. you. That's Thank you. 
we need it needed that. <laughs> so yeah, I don't even know that I'd really thought about this movie. Even when I was taking the class, I feel like it was just like that's the Spielberg movie, the one that like he uses in his logo and everyone knows and loves. There's nothing left there to like mine. And so like watching it this time, I was really surprised by how much there was to appreciate artistically that it's kind of a weird movie and like we were saying about Close Encounters kind of an art movie in a lot of ways like even though I think some people would point to it as like a template for a commercial movie obviously it made the most money of any movie at the time and many many family movies since then have been modeled on E.T. and have tried to replicate E.T. Mac and me (laughs) (laughs) but I don't think any of them have matched it like they don't even come close no they don't even come close on any level but like especially on the emotional resonance level and i think that's because there's a lot of risks taken here and a lot of purity in just like expressing emotion instead of trying to be a certain type of movie i'm not really sure that there this was a type of movie i think et basically invented this type of movie like as a kid i think i liked the domestic scenes the most the comedy stuff which is mostly the first half of the movie and was kind of expecting that again and then i was re-watching it just last night and was watching those parts and like enjoying them but also feeling like they were very familiar and that that feeling of like when you're watching a movie you've seen maybe like too many times or just I almost felt like I don't even really have to watch this again because I've seen this movie before I know it so well and then as the more dangerous stuff started happening and the stuff like that connects E.T. and Elliot's psyches I became much more invested yeah The emotion of the second half. I was so happy when the bike started flying. I was very sad when E.T. died. I was <laughs> elated when he came back to life. Yeah. Like, I was going yeah, through all those emotions like just it was like the first Elliot. time. <laughs> yeah, and I was just, like, kind of amazed because I, I don't know that I actually tapped into those emotions in earlier viewings because I, I guess I was less sentimental. This does evoke childhood in a way and maybe the further you are from it but it like does it in such a pure way that like you can instantly like tap back into it and so I mean we'll go into more specific things that I I really liked but yeah I was just really struck by how beautiful and like simple but like like deceptively simple like it looks simple but I think it's not at all there's a lot of complexity to it. There's a lot of complexity and I think purity I think that is a perfect word to just describe that and to describe the kind of monumental accomplishment that it is like as a whole piece. Yeah, so the film starts, like, the opening credits are on black, and it's, like, a kind of purplish-blue font. Which I'd totally forgotten. It's scary. Like, the music is really scary. Scary. And the beginning of this whole movie is, like, very, like, it could be a horror movie. It could very easily be a horror movie for the first 15 minutes until, like, when uh, Elliot first finds E.T., it's, like, it's very scary. There's something in the shed that's, like, throwing the ball back to him. I mean, before the shed, even, they're in the woods. Yeah. And... Boy, do I love the trees in this movie. Like, just the look of the trees. That was Melissa Matheson's idea. It was like, Spielberg was going to set it somewhere else, and she was like, 
forest. Forest, but just like the way the trees are filmed and the depth and how they cover some things. It's very magical forest. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. Um, but even the first sequence is the spaceship has already landed. A lot right. of movies would not have that. They would have somebody seeing it or the space spaceship in the sky about to land like the spaceship is already here and the aliens come out in the first like minute yep. which is so unusual for yeah an alien it doesn't movie. wait it doesn't dangle that out for an act and a half no because it's not about aliens invading it's right. about alien like you get right to the chase aliens are here they seem to be keeping to themselves <laughs> they're interested in the flora and fauna yeah and then something happens it's the opposite of close encounters which spends so, like the mm-hmm. whole movie making you wait until you see them and yeah i thought it was going to be a little bit more covert but you actually, I mean, they are kind of like running around scrambling, like you don't get a great look at them, but you see little ETs running all over the place. I just liked how this movie doesn't signal like this is a family movie. Like, you know, every movie feels like it has like a template that has to like start on this kind of beat. And this is like a movie that's like, I'm opening this like a horror movie, even though this is a movie for families, you know, and I, I just like that's a, a pretty daring choice. Like, I don't. I don't think you could, like, genuinely open a family movie like it's a horror movie now. Not so much a horror movie, but, like, you don't know what kind of movie it is. It's oh, very... I, I think it's I think it's very much paced like a horror really? movie. Like, I even think the... Because for me, just one of the, like, casual beauty moments that just staggered me to watch now is, you know, the scene where he's walking out to the barn to see, like, to see what's going on. That, I feel like all of Elliot's interactions, like, with his older brother and all the their shithead friends who just you know exclude him to me that felt exactly like the horror movie like preamble to the first opening kill hmm. you know i do think the horror movie comparison is a really apt one and i think in a way that's part of why it's so effective when et finally does <laughs> amble onto screen kind of shuffling toward elliot because it is a good couple of seconds where you're like no seriously is he gonna eat that kid what the fuck is gonna happen what does this thing want and the way that it plays with your expectation of what a movie that starts like this is gonna do, it's like really genius level filmmaking even for Steven Spielberg. And I think that that necessarily is why like all the rest of the movie works so well too. Yeah, he grounds it in this really real feeling family and setting in suburbia. And like he does this in Poltergeist and in Close Encounters, especially I think some of these early movies is he like really takes the time to make them feel real and like lives that the audience that's watching them has lived and then he like turns it into nightmare fuel and it's like now i'm shaking this up and it and it makes whatever is coming as outlandish as it may be feel like it's still a part of that reality even though it departs from realism you know like his movies are not anything that people would call realism all the way through he's so good and this is one of the best examples of just having people feel like they're alive and they're real people the way that he shoots conversations as people are talking over each other every single person in a scene has some business to do they're never just waiting to speak like i'm thinking of the the pizza scene where they're ordering pizza and what are they well, they're playing cards or, or something yeah like some kind of magic the well, yeah it's more like they were playing like dungeons and dragons something, yeah. like, something that, like that yeah yeah and and just the way that like all the kids are speaking and speaking over each other and i on purpose looked at like a random character in the scene who wasn't talking and they were doing real stuff like they weren't just like a background extra waiting to say their one line that's how 
I think most Spielberg movies are because he's just that good of a director. I also um, think that especially is, in this one. I also think that is some influence from Robert Altman, even if Spielberg himself wouldn't necessarily cop to that. Possibly. That especially did really make me kind of like think of Altman. Not that they're similar filmmakers really in any way, but just the fact that like everyone is alive. Everyone has a point of view, even if their point of view is not the one that you're focused on at that moment. This is the first movie that he didn't do storyboards for, so I think this one feels especially fresh in that way, in that he, like, he trusted himself by now as a filmmaker to just be able to improvise, and that freed him up to, like, I guess, kind of be in the mind of a kid and like follow kids more organically than he had in previous movies, where he was like really focused on like getting his shot list. I love how all the scientists searching for E.T. throughout the movie are faceless or have their faces obscured. And what we're focused on is like the set of keys dangling or we literally can't see their face because they're in giant hazmat suits or uh, an astronaut outfit (laughs) until the very end with the one adult who kind of connects with Elliot. It's just so smart because that's how a kid would see things. They don't see individual adults. It's just like this scary adult authority figure authority figure yeah. is on the loose <laughs> and chasing me or chasing et and i'm scared of them and i don't know i can't trust them until that one person at the end who i, I don't forget his name peter, peter coyote. coyote his yeah. name is keys i think keys yeah and the science teacher also in the classroom is shot like that too and i noticed that this time that i don't think i had before i, I later read it again in my research but i noticed it just watching the movie too it is so striking because i think i first noticed it with the science teacher and I was just like wait I haven't seen the science teacher and that's really interesting because a science teacher and then these other guys are scientists too so it's just like connecting those two things where it could have been a different kind of teacher I guess it would have been not the frog thing but yeah the mom is the only adult that you see in the movie in any kind of a close-up or like understanding of who she is until like you get this one close-up on keys that like then kind of opens up the movie to have like more of the adult characters talking and even the mom she feels like very childlike in certain ways too she's emotionally fragile because her husband has left her and she just she kind of feels like she's out of her depth with the kids like she's a little bit goofy like when um one of the I think it's Elliot calls his brother penis breath. <laughs> she like laughs she at laughs. it before she I is like, hey, that. yeah. Which is something as a mom I do where I laugh, but I'm also supposed to say you can't say that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was an iguana. It was no iguana. Maybe a, uh, you know how they say there are uh, alligators in the sewers? Alligators in the sewers. All we're trying to say is Maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. It was nothing like that, penis breath. Elliot, (laughs) sit down. I I wrote that moment down because I I loved her reaction so much. Like that that sense of humor, even when you don't want to have one as a parental figure I thought was really cute I think you could like pluck her out of this movie as is and like put her in like working girl or any kind of movie like that like she would I would follow like this woman like even though she- she's just not like a typical mom and there's there's some funny business where like E.T. is running around like right around her and she's not noticing because she's an 80s mom and 80s mom didn't know shit like every All 80s mom in a movie is like clueless like Nightmare on Elm Street but like she also feels like a real person and some of her moments are the most 
most memorable to me from my childhood. Like, I connected to her as a kid when she's, like, dressed as the cat and, mm-hmm. like, putting out the candles with candles. her little wand. Or her reaction when she first sees E.T. is, like, so memorable. Like, classic Spielberg face. So, yeah, like, her performance is great. And I think also just, like, the way that he approached that character. And, like, he could have made her just a faceless. He could have made her, you know, also, like, the other guys. Like, you don't never see her face. Or you or could have just made her, like, a really boring, like, typical mom character. But she's, like, a real person. She feels like she's not a generic mom. No, she's a completely well-rounded character. And we don't see that often enough in movies. Like, usually moms are like, you can't do this. You can't say penis breath, like, without laughing. Like, it just shows that she's a well-rounded person. She is not evil either. Like, she's not abusive or neglectful. It's just that she's busy. She's a single mom with three kids. And she has to go grocery shopping. And she has to pick up the dry cleaning. And yes, Gertie, okay. You know, like, she's just busy. She's not a bad mom. But that's how you feel when you're little, is you feel like, oh, my mom's not paying attention to me. I feel lonely. But that's not always because they're bad. Yeah, like, it would have been so easy for it to, like, make her seem like a bad mom because she's not paying attention. And instead, like, you totally are on her side and thinking like oh she's still a good mom she's still like she's doing the basics and she's loving her kids she's reading to her kids like she's not totally checked out but she's also missing stuff okay mom you can look now To me is also testament to writing and the way that like thematically the story really is also all about like a family unit that's struggling with feelings of alienation you know and that family unit collectively and everyone involved in it who's part of it realizing that that family isn't what it used to be but that it's still a family and like figuring out what that means and how to actually literally all relate to each other because i mean we haven't even really mentioned like the older brother and like how their relationship and his relationship with his older brother is a bit contentious but eventually like that resolves itself out through the story of the movie as well but yeah i also think that like the facelessness of the threat and the danger in this movie is part and parcel of why it's so effective i do wonder if it if this had something to do with why nasa was eventually defunded (laughs) because they're literal astronauts (laughs) like they're literal just dudes in actual spacesuits it's not even like hazmat suits they're like space helmets and that is so surreal when they open the door and an astronaut comes into your suburban house. It's like, what? But I I mean, it makes sense in the context, but it's also like this, I think that was like the most disturbing moment to me as a kid because it's just so incongruous. I love how the mom like becomes part of their team in the end. Like she's rooting for the kids and she's not just like, get my kids home safe. Like she is like as much a part of like wanting to get E.T. home as they are. And 
And you mentioned the older brother, and I really liked watching his journey in this watching of the movie because he starts off being like what you would expect a 14-year-old or however old he is, somewhere around there, maybe 15, 16. You know, he's like sarcastic, he's too cool for school. And then as soon as E.T. comes in, he like loses all that and he's like... (laughs) Both a kid again and also like taking responsibility because he's the oldest and he can do certain things that Elliot can't do, like drive or like, you know, like Elliot tells him go to the forest, like find E.T. when when Elliot can't. And he does it. And there is no more like attitude, which I feel like it's like so many family movies would have him just consistently be sarcastic or something. And this movie just like drops all that as soon as this happens, which is, I think, what you would do if like you were in this situation, like you wouldn't be continuing cracking like more jokes and like no you'd be like this is important (laughs) yeah i'm taking this seriously yeah and like a little bit at first the extent to which he's taking it seriously is more self-centered from like he doesn't want to get in trouble with his mom but then there's like a moment i think it's probably near the end of act two or so when it like does switch over because he's like spending time in elliot's closet while elliot and everyone are away this recurring motif in the movie is if this planter pot and at first it's full of dead flowers but then et is reading this like alphabet picture book and just like casually looks over at the planter pot and then you know casually goes back to his book and the flowers just like immediately miraculously come back to life. The first time it happened I thought it was just again just another one of those like casually staggeringly beautiful moments but I loved the way that they turned that into a motif in the movie where like when E.T.'s getting sick the flowers wilt and quickly die. That's when his older brother like really is pulled into it and really like puts his whole heart into trying to help and trying to get E.T. home. There's a scene where the older brother go just is like mourning like E.T. and Elliot are both like maybe at their worst and like it looks like they both might die and he's just like sitting in the closet like by himself sad and like that was such a great like little moment and like an unexpected moment for this teenage kid where he becomes kind of like a kid again himself and is feeling lost and confused himself and the flowers thing I mean yeah it's just like without needing to explain it like there's so much in this movie that doesn't need explanation there's very little like oh let's figure out what et's powers are like here's what he can do like you know it's just like you get it just from like the first time you see those flowers you're like okay i mean you don't know exactly what extent that goes but then when he can later heal wounds and there's other like coming back to life both he and elliot are revived it's like you already like get it and you don't really need to know any more information can we talk about how good Elliot is? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Henry... Thomas. Thomas. Best child performance in any movie, I would say. It's way up there. Incredible. His emotional moments, especially, I think, when he's crying or when he is, like, near death are just utterly convincing. I mean, he's great in other scenes, too, but those are more, like, cute scenes that probably a lot of kid actors could play, but, like, there are not many kid actors I've ever seen who can, like make me believe that they're like close to death in that way not even that but like the scenes where he sees that et is alive and he's just like ah like just his like he's so natural like not for one millisecond do i think this kid is acting he's just so phenomenal et phone home Yes. Ah! 
Three song home, eat two song home, two song home. Oh, phone home. Phone, phone, phone. You should home. Phone home, eat two song home, eat two song home, eat two song home. There is a YouTube video that's kind of famous as far as, you know, clips like this going viral, where it's Henry Thomas's audition. I'm not sure if there were sides or if he's just improvising, but the scene is like Spielberg's off camera saying, somebody's going to take your best friend E.T. away and you have to stop him. And they just go and he's just like, goes through this range of emotions. And I was like, and at the end he's like, you got the part, kid. And it's just like, the, even in the audition, this kid was like, fabulous. Yeah, and I mean, for, for me, that sequence where E.T.'s appearing to die. There was a lot of that that I just did not remember. And specifically, a lot about his reaction that I just didn't remember. And just the way that he experiences that is so gutting. Because it's also, you're also watching someone witness and reckon with mortality, clearly the first time he's ever had to do that. And like doing it in real time. Spielberg and and in the writing, I would say, they, they do such a great job differentiating the reactions of the different family members. And like showing the extent to which Gertie, like Drew Barrymore's, uh, Drew Barrymore's character, just she just does not ex- understand it really all that much at all. Because she like, didn't. No, that he was not real. Well, and in that moment, I'm like, no, don't let Gertie see it. Like, I was like feeling like protective over her character. And this is what good film storytelling is, where big things happen. But the reason why you want those things to happen is what they can reveal about who the characters are. And I just think, especially that whole sequence of E.T. getting sick and of him dying, I thought was just done so tremendously. And Chris, like you, I had remembered more about this movie that was from the first act and a half, the first half of the movie, basically. And I really had not fully internalized the extent to which Elliot and E.T. were really just so literally tied together, like whatever their life force is. I had the same experience this time of, you remember them as, oh, E.T. is his best friend. And I had really like minimized the amount to which they were connected and like only remembered that as like kind of a superficial, like, oh, it's so funny when E.T.'s, you know, drinking and Elliot's drunk in class. Right, I had totally forgotten about that whole scene. There's a scene where, like, E.T. drinks beers at home. And I remember that, but I did not remember, you know, why Elliot was, like, stumbling around. And, like, he literally, like, starts flirting with this girl and, like, kisses her in school in the middle of their science class. Emulating a a John Wayne movie, which I actually finally saw that movie for the first time (laughs) a few months ago and was like, oh my god, it's the E.T. movie. I had no idea what movie that was. Hmm. It's a John Ford movie. And they cut in, they quickly cut in those scenes, but I had no idea the context of what they were from. That's another story thing that, I mean, especially watching it as an adult, doesn't need to be fully explained and rationalized in a million different plot points for it to have the emotional resonance that it intends to have. And I just think, again, it's such a testament to every layer of craft that went into the making of the movie, but also very much especially like the performance of Henry Thomas. And if there's any line that explains that, it's very brief. Like, if anyone even says, Mm -hmm. oh, they're psychically linked or something like that, like, there might be like a quick line about that, but there's really so little. I think it's not until he's literally dying and they're like, are mapping it out on that like no it's screen. one of the scientist guys is talking to the older brother and he says he's trying to explain what's happening with elliot and et and the scientist is like oh he thinks et's thoughts 
And he's like, no, he feels what E.T. feels. Um, And it's just, uh, this is all built up from the very beginning when they're talking about their dad being in Mexico and Elliot's the one that reveals that, like, oh, dad's in Mexico with Katie or whoever, the new girlfriend. Secretary. Um, and, And the mom gets upset. And then the older brother says, like, can't you think of anybody but yourself? Like, can't you? And so that's Elliot's arc, is that he ends up being completely tied to somebody through their feelings and he can't help but but feel everything that E.T. feels. And I think that's also, again, just like another way that the storytelling element of like real friendship and real connection is emphasized just really beautifully. The way Drew Barrymore says that her dad is in Mexico, later repeating that (laughs) to, I think, the scientist, that resonated with me like as a kid. The sadness that like, and like, when she's saying it, it sounds like Mexico is the most remote place in the world. When, like, now we know, like, they're in California, Mexico's right down. But, like, it sounds like that. And my dad lives in Mexico now, and I still, like, I can't get that out of my head. Like, that he has gone to the furthest reaches of the galaxy. Well, it's a different country, and they don't speak English as the main language there. It does feel very, very foreign, especially mm-hmm. when you're a kid. I also thought Drew Barrymore's performance is great and super naturalistic, especially for someone who is that young at the time. Oh, yeah. She's great. Like, she's this. a tot. She's so cute. She is so oh, freaking cute. so cute. <laughs> I'm going as a cowgirl. <laughs> You're going to the moon! <laughs> <laughs> the yarn in her hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, no, she's great. God! Elliot. What? Elliot? Elliot? Elliot. I taught him how to talk now. He can talk now. Elliot. Look what he brought up here all by himself. Elliot. What's he need this stuff for? Elliot. E.T., can you say that? Can you say E.T.? E.T. E.T. Eaty, eaty, eaty. Be good. Be good. I taught him that, too. You should give him his dignity. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Phone. Phone? He said phone? He said phone? Can't you understand English? He said phone. I love the metaphor, the imagery of the house at the end, like this domestic safe house becomes infiltrated by the government, by scary adults, and becomes this like laboratory. Oh, and like it literally gets infiltrated, like these gigantic plastic stretching tubes connect to the house yeah. like a face hugger, you know? So it becomes like the house is a body in itself that's being like actually invaded by real monster scary space people. Yeah, for sure. Like they seem like the scary aliens. Right. And I love how it contrasts with the the nature of where E.T. comes from, like the forest in the beginning, the domesticity of like kind of a messy, realistic looking house where, you know, it just feels very lived in and very homey and then it all gets wiped away and very sterile everybody's wearing suits and they yeah all the wires coming out uh tubes coming out of the house like just visually it's just uh so thought thoughtful 
Yeah, it's. I mean, I think in so many ways this could be seen as a sequel to Close Encounters because the dad leaves in that one and then the dad is gone mm-hmm. in this one. Obviously not a literal sequel, but like just like spiritually, like this is basically like the kid's point of view of that same story. And I think it's so interesting that in this one, like this is also a story of an invasion, but it's people who are invading and it's this authority invading suburbia and like these normal innocent lives you want nothing to do with this and then this like oppressive force that is the government and science is coming in at these people instead of like something scary and like from out of this world it's like something scary from this world I do like, though, that it is very scary for the kids, that people are faceless, but it does seem like in this world, these people do want to help E.T. live. I like that the one adult besides the mom that becomes a character is somebody who, it seems like his entire life he's been looking for aliens, or he says something like, he came to me too, and I I think that he meant it as though, like, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Yeah, he says, he came to me too. I've been waiting since I was 10 years old for this. But that doesn't mean he's met an E.T. before. It just means, like, no, he's been waiting that, since he was a child for this yeah. moment. And, and clearly, like, that informed why he does what he does. Like, that's why he's a federal spaceman. Yeah, so I like that the... <laughs> so that is official title. I like that the... the what the screenwriter did is the the one pers- adult besides the mom who gets a personality and a name and everything is somebody who cares for E.T. as well. And it's, again, like, kind of continuing the thought process of Close Encounters of, like, we want to be friends with, we're here to help. Like, we want good things for these aliens, not to fight them. Yeah, I just, I just really appreciated that. Like, it seems like the adults were very sad when he died and really wanted to help him. Maybe not necessarily bring him back home because they probably did want to learn from him, but... Yeah, it's an interesting... You feel like Spielberg is also putting himself in that character in that moment, too, and is, like, as much as he's, you know, feeling... Elliot's feelings like you get a moment of an adult perspective too where it's like it takes you out of the like oh all these people are scary and and roots it kind of back in a in a kind of reality yeah I liked the connection between E.T. and Elliot this time like it does really feel like there's something kind of magical between them he's you know physically lost and this kid feels emotionally lost when one is dying they're both dying I think you could like read it in different ways but it's like it's kind of like if you let your childhood die like a part of you dies with it that's kind of how i saw it i guess is like holding on to some kind of purity and innocence and imagination which spielberg obviously you know had to do to make these kinds of movies hold on to that and i feel like this is really a love letter to being imaginative and being good-hearted and like believing in something there are a lot of movies like this where it's like a dog or a horse and it dies and the movie is about like grief and like how that's a part of life and you have to move on and I like that this one is like no don't move on like this is huge stakes like if he dies I'll die like because that's the intensity of the emotion that you feel as a kid you don't have this like rational sense of like oh yes death is a part of life like let me learn my lesson and then have a you know happy ending (laughs) it's like you feel like oh my god like I will die if this thing dies and so I liked that it stayed rooted in that childhood feeling like there's no point where you feel like, eh, it'll be okay. Like, (laughs) if E.T. dies, like, Elliot will move on and he'll be fine. 
when they are in, I guess it's not a hospital because it's their house, but the makeshift weird spaceship version of their house, it's just so harrowing. I have a hard time thinking of any other like family movie where you really feel that much danger for one or both of these characters. Like I really believe that either of them could die, even though rationally I know that like they would not probably kill Elliot in this PG Spielberg movie but at the time it feels like they both could die and E.T. does die and it feels very real like it doesn't feel like a cheat like it does in so many other movies where they have like a fake death which you know happens all the time yeah it not only feels like a real death but then also like it genuinely feels like he's trapped the way that he does that like switcheroo by like pretending to be so in mourning that you know he has to just like keep crying and holding on to it that's really fun it was so funny and the way that he ends up escaping really is like it has a lot of ingenuity and imagination to it in a way that made it I think a lot more believable than I was kind of expecting it to because I was like oh shit they like they really are trapped like how are they gonna get out of this jam I really again just especially this time watching it felt like all of that not only held together but just really did like drive it all toward a really satisfying resolution I really liked the costuming of Elliot, how he's like so often in pajamas or like wrapped in a blanket because it just made him feel very, I guess, vulnerable, but also, I don't know, there's something like otherworldly about it. Like he's almost like wearing a cape. Like, I don't don't know. It just was like a much more interesting choice than if he'd been wearing like a t-shirt and jeans and... I guess also felt just more like kid like is that he's just like wearing whatever is around or, you know, when he's sick, he's like wrapped in a blanket. Like I, I really liked just the way that they like had him look it it was very distinct i want to talk about elliot's closet space i think he shares it with gertie it's like a walkthrough closet it is so big i think his (laughs) walk-in closet has a walk-in closet (laughs) it's big enough for et to get in there and hide with the stuffed animals classic shot zemeckis's idea (laughs) and hide and drag we need to have at least one of the photos that we post VET and drag because it's fantastic. I mean, the, the shot of him with the stuffed animals though is very funny. It's so great. It's so great. And I also believe that like an average mom looking at a closet <laughs> full of stuffed animals would be like, yeah, yeah, freakish alien creature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was the first movie that Spielberg did like about kids. Like there had been kids in some of his other movies in prominent roles. And like in Jaws, a kid is eaten. And that's a very like shattering innocence kind of moment that's very disturbing but this is the first one where he actually like it was about kids and I, I think it's so amazing that it's this accomplished when when it's his first movie about this subject and the other thing I just noticed with this and Close Encounters is the light and that like the kind of signature style that he still has in a lot of his movies with like light streaming in from windows and stuff like um, natural light sources are big for mm-hmm. him like Jaws didn't really have that like this is something that I think he specifically kind of had developed for these two alien movies but it just like reminded me I mean it it was almost like expressionistic how it is like you think of Spielberg movies as so rooted in like suburbia and mundanity but then the way that he uses light like it's like they start in this sort of realistic way and they get more and more kind of nightmarish and I think there's a lot of noir influence and like German expressionism influence, and it's uh-huh. it's not natural light. Like none of this is lit by natural light at, at all. It's all studio lights. But they're but it's supposed to look like natural light through windows and a natural yeah. light source. But very like 
extreme version it's of natural super light. extreme it's big studio lights but they're tailored in such a way that yes it's like it's creating a naturalistic impression but that also goes to like cinematography too and there's so much in these movies that isn't necessarily like realistic when in the close encounters like certain things go crazy in the house when the aliens are after the boy like there's a lot that it's like oh i don't know if like that would really happen like is there really an alien right there but like because you're so rooted in like the realism that he starts with you like allow for it to get more and more kind of dreamlike and just like sort of impressionistic in terms of like this is how it would feel and like i don't know if i'd ever notice like how much it feels so dreamlike and how it's more just like giving the impression of what it would feel like more than it's necessarily representing like a reality of it like these two movies yeah they both really just struck me as artier than i thought they would be and much more using visuals to express emotion more than i mean they tell a story but more than that i think they're evoking emotion and like you get the story kind of secondary but like first you feel the feelings and the feelings are so big that you're with it no matter what the story really does like you just believe it because the emotions are that well captured on film So just to note, when E.T. opened, Poltergeist had opened one week earlier on June 4th. Time in Newsweek referred to it as the Spielberg summer. (laughs) I mean, he basically directed that movie. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of, like, debate on, like, how much. But yeah, he definitely had... He co-wrote the story and was very influential on like the storyboards at least and like the look and the feel of the movie and some of the day-to-day directing so he said it was the summer that taught him he wanted to have kids (laughs) (laughs) which i think is interesting but yeah both of those movies make the childhood experience kind of like represent it as like being terrifying and et goes a little further than that what he said about et was i wanted et to become a kind of conscience and companion to kids growing up in the 80s in the 50s i had Jiminy Cricket and Winnie the Pooh as imaginary sidekicks and preceptors. They were creatures who outlived their original context and I hope the same thing happens with E.T. And I would say he accomplished that (laughs) quite well. Just not with me, because I threw E.T. across the room. Wow, you were an extraordinary child. (laughs) There was an aborted sequel idea that I feel like we might have mentioned on the podcast before, although I don't know why, but I know we've at least talked about it. Is it the plot to the E.T. ride, where we go back to E.T.'s planet? It is E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears. (laughs) What? Written by Spielberg himself. It was just a treatment. I don't think they wrote a full screenplay. But um, the evil aliens kidnap the kids while in search of another lost alien named Zrak. What? And so the mom and Peter Coyote, who are now an item team up with E.T. to save them. This is the worst yeah, thing no, I've ever heard. No, don't do that. They didn't. Good news. Good they job. Didn't do Instead, that. they made a terrible video game that will live on in infamy. Yeah. <laughs> Please see our video game episode talking about the Atari. Yeah, that was an Atari game. Atari E.T. Yeah. game. And that's all the pieces we have Reese's for in this episode of When We Were Young. And on our next episode, we're going back to the well of Viacom products. <laughs> <laughs> and we're getting on that big orange couch. Finally covering SNCC, the Saturday evening primetime Nickelodeon programming lineup that many of us knew and loved growing up. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studios in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. And follow us on social medias at www.yshow on Twitter and Facebook. Also, you can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can bring you more episodes of this show. I have been Seth. I'm Becky. I don't like his feet. (laughs) 